Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The IMF out with its outlook, lifting the forecast for the global economy, but it's the story within regions that I think gets a little bit more interesting. Downgrading Europe and upgrading the United States. Gita Gopinath, the IMF chief economist, writing the following. Much now depends on the outcome of this race between a mutating virus and vaccines to end the pandemic and on the ability of policies to provide effective support until that happens. Gita, I'm pleased to say, joins us now. Gita, thank you for your time this morning. I know you're exceptionally busy. Let's just start with that breakdown on the regional side. What was behind the upgrade for the United States and the downgrade for Europe? Firstly, it's a pleasure to uh, join you. What we have is that in the case of the U.S., uh, we ended 2020 with an additional uh, stimulus that was provided, and that is an important factor for the upgrade for the U.S. by almost a percentage point. Uh, and 2020 also ended uh, in some way in a, in a you know, less worse place than what we had uh, projected for the U.S., in the case of the euro area, we still have strict containment measures in place. This, the virus resurgence uh, is leading to a decline in mobility, which is uh, much more than what we're seeing in the U.S. And that's uh, part of the reason why, because we have a downgrade for the first quarter in the euro area. For the year as a whole, we have a downgrade for 2021. So, Gita, I'd like to start in the United States and the stimulus effort and then we can turn to vaccines and what's happening in Europe too. On the stimulus effort, so the 900 billion is what you baked into the outlook. The 1.9 trillion, is that just a little bit extra for you, Gita? What would that actually do to the outlook and is it targeted enough? So, of course, the details, I mean, it still has to be uh, completely settled. So it's not in our uh, focus. We have a very preliminary estimate that says that about a 1.9 trillion stimulus would raise the level of U.S. GDP by 5% over three years. So that's between uh, 21 and 23. Um, I mean, our view is that, of course, we're still in the midst of this health crisis. There is need for much more faster vaccine rollout for health spending, including in testing, uh, and also for providing support to vulnerable households and businesses. Uh, and so, you know, all of those are important pieces that have to be uh, addressed still. Uh, and so, so, you know, that those are support measures that should be provided. 5% over the next three years, they're decent numbers. But Gita, do you, do you base this on the size of the program, 1.9, or is there some specifics about the composition of it the IMF likes and would like to see more of? So this is, uh, you know, we're, you know, I'm just making a statement about sure. what our estimated impact of 1.9 trillion would be over three years. I mean, that's a fiscal multiplier of 0.6, just taking into account what we know from a previous data on how much of it tends to get saved based on the package that was, was uh, uh, you know, was uh, talked about. But again, the details still have to be worked out. And so we'll see what exact shape that finally takes. One thing you've said in the outlook is the mutations, the new strains. And I just wonder from your perspective whether these strains that we're seeing in the United Kingdom, Brazil, South Africa, actually raise the bar to reopen these economies, Gita. How do you think about those things at the moment? Yeah, I think what it tells us that, you know, while stay at home is difficult and social distancing is difficult, we know that the... Uh, the chances of the virus mutating is higher when all of us are out there and, you know, mixing. And so I think this is an additional reason for, for uh, 
you know, kind of being very cautious about uh, going out and wearing, and very important to wear masks and so on. So yes, I think we have to, uh, you know, continue to vaccinate at a very high pace. It doesn't change what we need to do. I think what we still need to do is simply to accelerate the pace of vaccine rollout. But also now we have to just make it available to the world as a whole. I mean, the way it is right now is terribly inequitous. Yeah. And we know that the virus mutation can come from anywhere in the world. What you're building on right now, though, Gita, is absolutely critical. The, the conversation I'm having at the moment almost every day with market participants is just relative growth, differentials between Europe, the United States. The vaccine rollout is good here, it's bad there. One will do OK, one will do better, the other one will do terribly. Would you be willing to make the argument now that if we don't make a bigger effort to vaccinate those outside the developed world, that that ultimately will drag down the global economy at some point anyway? Well, absolutely. I mean, the arguments are obvious, both on the health side and the economic side. On the health side, because of these new variants, we, we just know that the pandemic is not over until it's over everywhere. But there's also a strong economic argument. I mean, we estimate that if you can get to a faster into this health crisis by much more widespread rollout of vaccines and therapies, you know, we would add $9 trillion to the global economy between 2020 and 2025. And everybody benefits, including the advanced economies who stand to gain $4 trillion, around $4 trillion. So this is you know, a very strong economic case for doing much more now. Final question, Gita. There is a take among some people, especially in markets, it seems to be a belief that if we have to delay reopenings by an extra quarter or so, it doesn't matter. It won't be growth loss. We'll make up for it the back end of the year into 2022 as well. Do you see it that way? So there's a couple of things. Even if you just look at when you have lockdowns, the effect of that on economic activity is much lower than what we had in the spring, last spring. Uh, you know, if you look at, for instance, the relation between mobility and economic activity in the U.S., mobility has barely moved that much, but economic activity has continued to recover. So countries have gotten used to functioning with social distancing in place. So the effect is, is going to be less severe. Uh, and indeed, I mean, for many economies, we're entering it higher savings rates in the among households so you could rebound but again i just cannot emphasize enough the uncertainty i mean there is so much more we still need to know about how this pandemic evolves i think that's a message that resonates with a lot of our audience gita thank you for your time it's precious getting open out there the imf chief economist Right now, and this is a joy, uh, folks, for those of you that aren't up to speed on United Kingdom academics, if you're John Farrow, there's a point where you must learn Rawlsian justice. It's what they do in terms of theory uh, in the United Kingdom. And right now, one of our experts on human rights and its application to our public health in our law, Lawrence Gostin, joins us with Georgetown University. I want to go back to your book, Human Rights, Professor Gostin, and I want to talk about the shocking change in philosophy without saying Republican or Democrat, but this tectonic shift we're having right now in the perception of American human rights. On this transfer of government, your observation, please. Wow, it's like night and day, isn't it? Um, you know, all of a sudden we're, you know, we're back to the truth. We're back to freedom of expression. Um, we've rejoined the World Health Organization. Um, we've rejoined the climate change agreement in Paris. Um, so there's, you know, it's really been a tectonic change um, from the last administration. It's kind of almost like a whipsaw. You, you, know, go, you go from one to the other. I think that the big thing is you know, whether American allies are going to think, well, gosh, you know, is America here? Is this one America or is this two Americas? 
will we see the old America again? And it's, you know, we don't know that. Well, this is vitally important, and this spans your career of the Reagan and the Trumpian individualism of less government or indeed no government, uh, some would editorialize. Professor Gostin, do you see a shift here in an end or a diminution of what we got from Ronald Reagan? Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're, we're in the middle of, we're all kind of suffering during the break. We were just having a laugh about how COVID has completely gripped and changed our lives. You know, and if there was ever a time that really government has come through for us, if government failed for sure in the United States, um, we were no match for the virus. But then, you know, government, public-private partnerships through science, pharmaceutical companies, the NIH, um, we ended up with, you know, we, 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 the science was the match for the coronavirus. We've got this vaccine um, in, we've never seen it this quick. Um, and we're now poised by the end of the year um, to think that we might climb our way out of that. That was, that was a partnership about what government can do with the private sector. And I think that the new way that we move forward in America and globally are really public-private partnerships. They're nimble. Um, they get the best of both worlds. And, you know, the proof of the pudding is, is that now we're starting to get you know, vaccines in people's arms way too slowly, but that will improve. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Professor Gostin. How do we turbocharge getting vaccines in people's arms? You know, we, we've been able to do it before. It's really kind of shocking to see how badly we've done it in the United States thus far. But, you know, if you think about, you know, polio in the United States, where we went through a massive campaign, or if you think about um, uh, the current polio eradication, um, uh, which the United States uh, is spearheading, or that we eradicated smallpox. I mean, the way to do it is you open up a lot of vaccine clinics, you get mobile units to go into rural areas, into elderly, vulnerable people's homes, into prisons, nursing homes. Um, you have um, drives. Right now, what's the real problem with the American rollout is, is that it's just far too complicated. You have, you know, just talk to any of your friends and they'll say, well, you know, have you called this number? Have you been on this website? Did you try, you know, this pharmacy? Um, are you in this county, this state? Yeah. Um, so it, it privileges the people that are tech savvy, that kind of know their way around. But the people who really need the vaccines really don't, really can't compete in that kind of a way to search for them. So we, not, we need to search for them they don't need to search for the vaccine. Looking forward, Professor Gosson, there's a question of whether what we have seen over the past two years, year and a half, will turbocharge investment in pharmaceutical companies in the development of new drugs and new uh, biological research. And this comes as Israel gets a head start in part because of their production of some of these vaccines. Do you already see the groundwork being laid for more investment, both on the public side as well as the private side, for this type of development? You know, it's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, I think, I think pharma is, you know, you know, certainly come come through for us on this. Um, but on the other hand, you know, pandemics are funny things from an economic point of view. Um, the reason companies don't invest in them, and the reason that the public doesn't invest in them, is because they're so unpredictable. Um, you know, it's very possible that you know that the next 
uh, novel coronavirus or novel influenza, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump from an animal to a human, and then we'll just get it right under control. We're, we're, and, and, and a lot of money putting into vaccines won't work. And so what, what, what the new thinking is, is, is that we develop with public-private partnerships, you, you need public investment for this, platforms. And so the platform can be there. And then when the pathogen comes, you've already got kind of a way to tackle it. That's exactly what Pfizer and Moderna have done with their messenger RNA vaccines. You know, they started out as platforms. We were looking at them for things like um, uh, the SARS virus. And then when this came, we were already, you know, way ahead. Yeah. And I think that's the future. Professor, come back soon. Great to catch up. Professor Gostin of Georgetown. Thank you very much. Let's dovetail this together with Mr. Burla's comments with Pfizer and bring it over to Tina Fordham, Avonhurst partner and head of global political strategy. We do this and welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Tina, I love how you address in your note the walls of worry of January, and you make very clear they're not going to be the same as the walls of worry of Q3. The market right now is looking out at the politics of the third and fourth quarter of this year. What will it look like? Well, I think your previous speakers have have already taken us through some of the obstacles to the rollout. Um, I've been talking about my Vax Populi thesis for a while. I think there's phase one and phase two. The phase one is the logistics, the government capacity, the the public willingness, um, plus the risk of mutant strains. But I think the second phase is that periods um, following pandemics tend to see more political disruption and extremism. And whether we're thinking about the, the Capitol riots and Black Lives Matter or there were anti-curfew protests in the Netherlands yesterday. This is going to be a volatile period as we look to get this under control. Tina, let's talk a little bit about the politics of getting the vaccine out. There is a question of what went so wrong in the European Union that they are so delayed, they are so behind the United Kingdom, the U.S., and places like Israel. Does this raise questions about the integrity of the EU as a social experiment if they are unable to plan on a routine and mass basis for their population to be inoculated? Uh, I think that's a particularly American point of view, um, the, the U.S. has just started its rollout and, um, it, you know, it's kind of starting from, from nothing. Uh, the U.K. here, where I'm based, is, is very pleased that um, it's outdoing Europe um, so far. Part of its logistics, part of its government capacity, part of its federal, you know, versus regional infrastructure. Um, I do think the EU will get there. I think there's not any reflection on the EU as a as a social experiment, um, as you suggested. Um, the US and the UK still have the highest death rates out of the countries that we mentioned. Um, uh, the UK, out of all of the countries that we're talking about, 
also has one big advantage, and that is a higher rate of willingness to take the vaccine, um, which is helping. And approval. It approved before the EU did. Well, there's a question, though, Tina, about the conservatism in the European Union approach and not necessarily going as aggressively after the vaccines as early in prioritizing the price and trying to uh, be sort of more democratic about the whole situation in terms of who gets the vaccine. And it isn't necessarily working in the same way. What kind of political reckoning will there be in Europe as a result of this? I think when I, you know, my conception of this vax populi risk idea is where there is a combination of high fatalities, um, a slow rollout, plus or minus this vaccine hesitancy factor and elections coming up. So if we put that kind of lens over uh, countries at risk. France obviously comes out, um, uh, you know, quite quite near the top with uh, parliamentary elections this year, presidential next. Italy always because uh, Italy's got kind of all of the risk factors, and uh, the government there is certainly starting to to wobble. So it is imperative that governments find the capacity to to roll this mm -hmm. out and that they regain the advantage on competence because that's the biggest political risk factor. Uh, government incompetence. Tina Fordham, thank you so much. With Evan Hurst, partner and head of global political strategy. More green on the screen today, Tom, and why not the Federal Reserve backstopping this market? A lot of folks are saying, have I missed my entry point? I talked to a few of those oh, people, please. Tom. Have I missed my you, entry point? You. Let's I'm get getting the, the latest. button over here. You do it solo. <laughs> Chris Heisey, Merrill and Bank of America, private bank chief investment officer. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, you take a look at this market. You see Tom's favorite investment vehicle, SPACs, almost on a daily basis coming to the market. You see Robinhood retail traders uh, pushing stocks all around the board like GameStop. Give us a sense of how you view this market in terms of the frothiness, if you will, in this market. Yeah, I think it's a subject that uh, it really started to take off in, in November of last year when small caps had their best month ever. And the whole head fake, you know, the Michael Jordan head fake of investing started to go away. And people started to believe that cyclicals can actually extend some of their rally. And then now we talk about offerings three, four, five, six a week. We talk about, you know, what's going on in the big story, little profit stocks that are out there being bid up, the high enterprise value to sales companies that are about a quarter of trading volume in the U.S., and everybody remembers when, or at least some of us remember when, right, Tom? Yep. Paul, in terms of 1999-2000. But I would point to this. You have to look at policy. You have to look at what are the tailwinds that are driving not just the thin parts of the market, that the risk areas that are suggesting, you know, quite frankly, flashing orange, uh, as, you, as you pointed out. The sentiment uh, indicators are clearly at highs right now. Frothiness is out there. There's a lot of discussion as to, did I miss it? Valuations are high, but earnings are low. And mathematics tells you that when earnings are at a trough, many times valuations are going to be high. Uh, that's where we are right now. I would think differently if earnings were at a peak and valuations well, were high. 
And, and thank you so much for that analysis. I would point out, folks, Microsoft, Paul taught me the symbol on the break. Uh, <laughs> Microsoft here with a jump condition out to 232. I believe that's out to a record high. Dow well over 31,000. SPX, we're on a 3,900 watch. Chris, that's all great and well, but the way this always ends is a, cath- a cathartic move. Do you see an emotional catharsis right now that leads you to say tippy-tippy-top? Not yet. Not yet, Tom. It, it feels that way because of headlines. It feels that way because of focus that we read, uh, and whether you're talking about the short squeezes that are going on. But actually, when you talk to individual investors and you talk to, to, to folks out there that are in the market already but not participating as much, they don't believe that there are no risks out there. They still build the five top risks. They're still worried. They're concerned. And they're marching to risks still. They're not coming into the market blindly. And that, to me, means that whatever pause is coming at whatever time is a temporary pause, and it's not the tippy top. All right. So as you talk to the thundering herd at Merrill Lynch, that huge retail brokerage force across uh, the country here, what is the risk appetite here, Um, Chris? Are they willing to continue to take risk in this market? Are they, are they playing that reopening trade uh, in the back half of this year? It's a fantastic question because it does give you a really good feel for not only the client side, but the advisor side. And from my perspective, what we have done, and we always do on a quarter basis, is we, we write down what are the big questions out there and what's the mood. The mood is cautiously optimistic on the economy, but cautious on the market. So they're waiting for that things are not only okay, but we're not walking into a pullback of, say, 10%. So there's still a little bit of trepidation out there. There's cash on the sidelines, and I know cash has come into the markets. We saw the record flows go in. But if you go back to 08 and even 2018, more than 90% of all flows are still into fixed income. So on a relative basis, uh, you know, about 6%, 8% or so into equities. So we have a ways to go here on a longer-term basis. Shorter term, I would paint the mood as there's cash out there waiting to invest. Advisors and clients are cautious, but they're optimistic on the economy. So, Chris, what do you think about this rotation trade? It's really becoming to vogue here, and it's, you know, we're kind of four to five months into this trade where people are willing to look to the other side of this pandemic, look to an opening of this economy and saying, hey, I'm going to take some uh, cyclical risk here. I may even go small cap here looking for value and looking for performance. How do you view that trade? Is it, is it something we can depend upon you know, going forward? Uh, we believe so. We, we just upgraded in January small caps to uh, more of an overweight. We had a slight overweight. We were waiting for some data to come through to make sure that there was more of a secular trend at play, not just an ultra-cyclical trend that we saw to close the year. Um, we upgraded uh, financials and industrials and materials as well. Uh, those areas you know, provide a little bit more cyclical value and growth, uh, quite frankly, in those areas. And we yeah, upgraded and you know, we closed out emerging markets uh, underweight and we went to neutral. The point is you're in the market, right? That's right. How many people do you see, as Paul mentions at Merrill Lynch, with the sprawl of your retail and institutional and high net worth people, how many people are just flat out not in the market? It's tough to tell. Um, 
I would say a low point uh, are flat out not in. Uh, there has been a small increase of, of, of a risk budget, if you will, Tom, where you have saw people, you know, because of a backup in yields, lower some fixed income allocations, raise some equity allocations, but on the margin. We didn't see a huge, yeah. you know, that so-called great rotation. Yeah. Uh, we do believe, though, that 2021 is a great rotation foundational year for those long-term institutional accounts that are going to have a hard time matching total return targets as yields yeah. back up. I mean, Paul, just to put this in perspective, as Chris is, you know, I'm so used to the gloom of Lisa Bramowitz that I can barely <laughs> get through it. But a 10% correction here, obviously 3,000 Dow points, gets you back to November 6th. Yep. It gets you back to the second week of August, and it's just beneath the peaky peak we'd never see again Valentine's Day pre-pandemic. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I can say constructive, Paul, for my entry point is a 10% correction gets me beneath the nirvana of Valentine's Day. <laughs> so, Chris, how about for the, for the folks that feel like maybe they've missed the market? Oh, who would that be? <laughs> who would that be? What's your advice for those folks, Chris? Yeah, I think it's tough. We all point to dollar cost averaging. We point to seasonality. We point to the calendar. I think use the capital markets as your friend. I know that sounds like it's easy to do. It's not. But if you're disciplined and you actually point to weak periods in the market, as Tom was suggesting, you know, don't wait for that large invitation to the so-called party. Wait for the small invitation and figure out what your target is. If your target's 70% and you're at 60, deploy 2-3% on weekdays, week weeks, over the course of the first quarter, and from our perspective, we see the maverick bull market. We call it a maverick bull market continuing because it's independently thinking. And that's what, from our perspective, is the more, uh, what I would say, effective way to deploy money into the market. Chris Hesley, thank you so much. Merrill Lynch from Bank of America Private uh, Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.